From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. Mark, how's your week been going? It's busy. I mean, we're sort of, we're in this like post-nominations Oscars phase, which is sort of like a new jolt of award season energy. Although this year, you know, because the everything in this award season is sort of elongated, it just makes everything seem weird and, and longer. Like it's all still happening. Well, and it's such a weird thing too, because I feel like every time I open my Instagram, I'm just like flooded with people sharing their photos of getting the vaccine. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Everyone's like moving on with life, like sharing pictures of eating indoors. And I'm like, this doesn't feel like I'm in the rights reality right now. So it's all sort of mind bending where we find ourselves. Uh, yeah, I, I have very little concept of time anymore. <laughs> well, tell us who's the guest this week. Well, appropriately enough, it's Garrett Bradley. As a fine artist, she recently had her first solo show at the Museum of Modern Art. And as a filmmaker, she won the directing prize in the U.S. documentary competition at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival for her movie, Time which is a film about a woman named Fox Rich who for 21 years fights to free her husband from prison. And a lot of the footage in the movie is made up of very intimate and personal home video footage that Fox Rich herself made sort of prior to Garrett Bradley entering the project. And so it really is just this like very like close-up, personal you know look at what incarceration does to a family. It's just a really emotional and intense movie. And also Fox Rich is just an amazing person that you see sort of come into her own in the course of the film. You know, I think that there is something to be said for living in a really fast world right now where we don't have a moment to really sit and and listen, you know, or look. And that sometimes the, the more opportunities that we have for that, the more opportunities we give ourselves to do that, there's a real opportunity to um, to learn and to have your own expectations and ideas of things be challenged. I should add, Garrett is the first Black woman to win the Documentary Directing Prize at Sundance. And she just recently was, Time was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, well, I'm very much looking forward to hearing this conversation, Mark. And we'll get to it in just a couple of minutes. Hi, this is Harry Littman, LA Times legal columnist and host of the Talking Feds podcast a roundtable discussion that brings together prominent former government officials, journalists, and special guests. This year, we're covering everything you need to know about the presidential transition with guests that include Valerie Jarrett, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Congressman Jamie Raskin. So tune in everywhere that you find podcasts. Mark's conversation with Garrett Bradley is up next, but first, let's spend a minute, more or less, with our columnist, Glenn Whip. Well, Oscar nominations are in, as you probably know, and here's the race that I'm really looking at, supporting actress. I mean, right now, you'd probably say that the favorite is Ya Jung-yoon, the wonderfully eccentric grandmother in Minati, which is just this beloved Best Picture nominee. I think it's going to win something, right? But the category also has Amanda Seyfried, 
who's won more than a few critics' prizes for Mank, and also has Maria Bakulova, who is the scene-stealing Bulgarian actress in the Borat sequel. So both great performances. But then there's more. There's the added presence of Glenn Close and Olivia Colman, who you probably remember competed for the Best Actress Prize a couple of years ago. And this was the year that Close was finally going to win her Oscar after so many nominations. She was going to win for The Wife, but then the envelope was opened and it was Olivia Coleman winning for The Favorite. Big upset. Now, I don't really want to watch Glenn Close have to watch Olivia Coleman win another Oscar again. That would be weird. But then, do we want Glenn Close to win her Oscar for Hillbilly Elegy? I don't think so. So, probably what the Academy should do, and I, I think what they will do is give the prize to Ya Jung Yoon, who's so good in Minati. And then we can celebrate that and we don't have to have all those profoundly uncomfortable feelings that a close win or a Coleman win would give us. So we'll see what happens on Oscar night. You know, that supporting actress category this year is a little more sort of complicated and you kind of almost feel like you could make a credible case for just about any one of those women to win. And so it's going to be interesting over the next, you know, little while to see how things sort of sort of develop. Totally. I always love hearing Glenn's predictions and there's a lot of uh, noteworthy women in this category. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But Mark, let's get to you talking to Garrett Bradley. Garrett, your documentary Time is about Fox Rich, who fights for 21 years to free her husband from prison. And you met Fox while working on another project, a short black and white film called Alone, which was also about incarcerated families. What was it about Fox Rich that made you decide to make a full-length documentary about her? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been really lucky because every project I've made has come out of the one that preceded it. (laughs) And I think that that's just because so much of what I do is invested in people that are naturally a part of my life and in my community, I think. And, you know, with Alone, that film for me was really about creating a space for an intergenerational conversation between women uh, to exchange information, to offer a source of support to one another around incarceration and what it means to be in an incarcerated family. And Lon with that film was the very beginning of that process. She'd never, she'd never had any proximity actually to the system at all. And so Fox, you know, I had contacted an organization called Flick, Friends and Families of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children. And Gina Womack, who's the director of that organization, picked up and was like, Lon needs to speak to Fox. Like these two women need to come together and have a conversation. And a sliver of that conversation exists still in Alone. So I got to know Fox in the process of making that film, as you said. And I think for me, it was it was both an opportunity to continue the conversation around incarceration from a sort of inherently Black feminist point of view, from a family's point of view, but it was also an opportunity to look at how a different woman was moving through the same system in her own unique way. It was a way to make sure that one film didn't stand alone as sort of the monolithic experience, that there's there's a real diversification of how people are moving through the system. And now the project that became Time really changed a lot as it developed. What, what was the project you started out to make? So I I was really convinced that I was making another 13-minute film. 
that was going to really be a sister film to Alone. Also, again, sort of looking into the future. So stylistically, you know, a lot of the choices in terms of how it looks and feels, I knew right away were going to be just adapted from Alone. But on our last day of filming, Fox handed me this beautiful little black bag and said, maybe this will be of some use to you. And it was 100 hours of her own personal archive, which I didn't know existed while we were shooting, and which is in this gorgeous color with all sorts of texture and materiality that is so different from the world I was creating with this film. And it presented some incredible challenges for myself and Gabe Rhodes, who cut the film, that I could probably speak endlessly (laughs) to. (laughs) That to me seems like such a challenge. Like you're making one project, you're pretty far along with it. And then like, how do you, how are you open enough, aware enough to like say, oh, this is a whole other thing. I got to reconceive what I'm doing. Well, I think making documentaries, it's a practice in honoring the present moment. It's a practice in working with change, you know, going with going with change, going with the wind, with the ocean, you know. And the universe had a higher plan for what this film was going to be, which revealed itself um, at the right time, actually. I mean, imagine if I had, you know, finished it as a short film and then found out about the archive. <laughs> that would have sucked, you know. And so, I mean, I think that there's, it was really a matter for me of saying like, well, what is the challenge for me as a filmmaker? Like, what is it that I'm afraid of? What is it that I don't think I can do well? What is it that's going to help make the film better? And to really lean into those questions. And, and also, how does this serve the original intention that I've always had, you know? And, and how do I make this work, you know? And I think that the journey that was required of me and of Gabe to answer that question is what's helped me be a better filmmaker and a better person, hopefully, as well. Tell me about that. How, how do you think the movie has impacted you personally? I think, you know, over the summer, you know, when COVID descended upon the world and, uh, and we saw these protests that were happening here in the States, on one hand, we're living in a moment that's unveiling everything that's always existed. It's a revealing of those things. I think that the role that images play, the role that optics play in holding systems accountable is something that, you know, Emmett Till's mother certainly knew about and has has continued to be a powerful form of resistance, I think, in American culture. But it also, I think, in this present moment has illuminated for me on a personal level, the lack of imagery around the prison industrial complex. You know, if we think about 2.3 million people being incarcerated, even that number, the fact itself becomes abstract. And so in many cases, we need to understand the absence of something as an opportunity to, to make things more present. And as a filmmaker, I think that's really struck me in a way profoundly that I, that I had maybe taken for granted. Well, to me, it's one of the things that's most remarkable about time and telling the story of Fox and Rob and their family is in their story is both these much larger societal issues about race and the justice system, and also these very intimate, personal, emotional issues just about their family. Was it hard juggling those? I mean, in some ways, those are two very different movies that both exist within your one movie. I think that systems, we have to understand that like systems and issues are run by humans. (laughs) That there are humans behind the issues and the systems, and there are humans that face the effects of all of these things. And I think that a film like this one really stands on the shoulders of a film like 13th. If you were to watch both of these films together, I think you would get a full 
kind of 360 degree view of what the problem is, you know, with prison and with America. And so I don't really think of myself as making films in a vacuum. I'm making my films to be in conversation with what I know is also there and with what isn't there. It allowed me to be, I think, a bit more confident in really choosing what my perspective was going to be and how I wanted to tell the story. Because I've heard you say that you consider the film to be a conversation in dialogue with Fox's archive. Like, can you tell me a little bit more about that? What to you that conversation with that footage is? I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think it it first kind of started to present itself with America and then certainly grew more and more as I was going through time, which is the challenge for me, I think, as a filmmaker. And sorry if this is like overthinking. I mean, people may listen to this and be like, well, she's really like overthinking this shit. I don't know. But I really feel like, you know, we're working in two-dimensional space. We're telling stories one frame at a time. And that's really not how life is. You know, that's not how we perceive things or understand things. You know, that the present moment is made up of all the moments that came up before it, that our personal histories inform the way in which we behave now and in the future. And so to try to show the totality of that in filmmaking is is a huge challenge. And so I think the dialogue that exists between the footage that I shot and the footage that Fox shot in the 90s is one that hopefully taps into that same question of how do we show the holistic nature of what life really is? How do you show the full evolution of a person's story one frame at a time and not necessarily in a way that's chronological or linear, which is also, I think, how we live in the real world. And now you mentioned that the footage that you got from Fox was in color. It maybe was even in a couple different formats. For you and your editor, the decision to have it all be in black and white, how did you come to make those kind of decisions? And also the fact that the movie kind of slips in and out of time. It's not, it's not told in a linear way. Yeah, I mean, the color, it's so beautiful. I mean, the, the original archive, I really, for a moment there was like, man, we just need to like make this in color, to make it color, you know? It was important for me that it stay in black and white because I had intended for it to be in black and white, you know, because it was connected to alone. And again, a lot of the stylistic choices were attached to that older film. I think what allowed us to kind of weave in between all of these things um, and where the black and white ultimately landed was having to go back to the question of, again, what is the intention in wanting to make this film? Every project I make starts off with conversations and asking that question with the people I'm, I'm making films with. And Fox and the family said, our story is the story of 2.3 million other American families. We feel that our story can offer hope. And so for me as a filmmaker, I felt well, my responsibility is to try to distill the abstraction of hope and ask myself, well, what does hope mean and look like for this family? in a really concrete way. How can I show hope, you know? And I think what that ended up being was, was kind of in these three pillars. It was, it was unity. It was their ability to stay together over the course of 21 years. It was love, certainly. It was individualism. It was their ability to hold on to themselves as individuals amidst a system that is intended to break that down. And so all three of those things informed what images we were, we were going to choose, you know, in the archive. And, and none of those things are linear. None of those things are chronological. Love, individualism, unity, those things surpass all time and space. And so we were free to lean into that and, to, and it allowed us to move forward and backwards at the same time. Because there, there are some moments in the movie where 
you know, we're looking at older footage of Fox and then you jump forward to more contemporary footage. And you really do in those moments, you see her mature, you see her change, you see her grow. And it's funny, it was so striking to me. I kept thinking about the movie The Irishman and the way that they had those sort of digital aging techniques. And it was like, no, this is that in reality. Like this is actually watching a person like change and grow and the impact of their life on their personhood. Wow. Wow. That's really deep. That's so true, man. Yeah. I think about this question of performance and, and um, that just made me think of that too. And, and this idea of excellence and sort of the armor that's developed over time too. Right. Like I, I think a lot about like how I remember reading about the Irishman and how De Niro and the actors talked about their physicality and how they had to adapt their physicality. And I, I, to me, that's also something that's so striking with Fox and, and with time is being able to see her physicality also change and her presentation also change over the course of those, those years. Um, both, I think, as a reflection of her just growing out of her youth into being a woman and a matriarch, but also, I think, um, thinking about presentation and the precision of her presentation as a form of resistance. You know, if you can imagine having to present yourself in front of parole boards for 21 years, what that does, the way in which someone sees themselves and has to hold on to themselves, you know. And there's a moment in the film, and it's funny, I don't know if this is from your footage or her footage, when she's at a church service and she is talking about meeting two women who were victims of part of the the bank robbery that sent both her and her husband to, to jail there was regret there. There was apology there. You could see her sort of personal growth. That moment was so phenomenal and so powerful. Can you talk to me a little bit about that moment in particular and what it, what it kind of meant to you in the in the course of the movie? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's a good tale to this question of presentation and, and sort of strength because I remember when Gabe and I found that moment in the archive and we were like, this is it. This moment right here is going to help people understand her evolution, that we are witnessing an evolution. It was kind of the most literal and direct way in which we could illustrate that. And I think that um, it is the beginning of her new life. It's the beginning of her self-documentation, of her fight, of her abolitionist work, you know, of of her being a public figure. It's the beginning of that. And I hope that it also then ties into these questions of why presentation is so critical and that it's not just there for the sake of being there, that there is a palpable, there's a very real and valid reason for it, you know? And there are just these beautiful zooms that happened throughout the, the movie. There's one moment in particular when Fox is like, she's on hold and she's waiting to hear from a, a judge's clerk as to whether the hearing has been had and if she can find out the fate of her husband or not. And there's something so powerful in the way that you just creep on in t- towards her with your your camera. And it happens a few times in, in the movie. Was that, at what point did you realize you wanted that to be part of the style of the footage that you were shooting? Well, I'm obsessed with Zooms. I could Zoom, man, I'm so into Zooms. Like I, if I look at something hard enough, I feel like I'm zooming in on something with my eyes. You know what I mean? Like I love them because uh, because it it offers, you know, both context and specificity all in the same frame, you know, all in the same moment. That, again, is how we, I think, to a certain, most of us live life. We have the broader ideas and then we concentrate in on certain things. And I think that moment of concentration is also when the Zoom is sort of activated. It feels to me like the most absolute mimicking of how our eyes and our minds feel 
you know, when we're thinking or observing something. But a lot of those, a lot of those choices came from this 13 minute film from, from alone, you know, and I was really interested not only in, in speaking to, to what I just mentioned in terms of context, but also, um, you know, I think that there is something to be said for living in a really fast world right now where we don't have a moment to really sit and, and listen, you know, or look. And that sometimes the, the more opportunities that we have for that, the more opportunities we give ourselves to do that, there's a real opportunity to, um, to learn and to have your own expectations and ideas of things be challenged. So that's just been an important kind of ethical way of using, using the, the device. Our nation has endured. Let's make sure the facts do, too. Pay $1 for eight weeks and get a perspective unlike anywhere else. Go to latimes.com slash subscribe. Los Angeles Times, the state of what's next. Hey, this is Andy Bernstein, Hall of Fame photographer for the NBA and host of the Legends of Sport podcast. For the past three seasons, we've spoken to icons such as Magic Johnson, Steve Kerr, Jerry West, and Sue Bird. And not just from the world of basketball, but legends of all sports, including owners, superfans, and members of the sports media. Find new episodes of Legends of Sport on the LA Times app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See, this is the type of podcast you gotta have. <laughs> Time is the first feature documentary that you've directed, but you've also worked on nonfiction films. You were second unit director on Ava DuVernay's When They See Us, and you also work in the fine art space. You just wrapped up a solo exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. Do all these things connect for you? Is there something that ties them together? It's hard to say exactly what it is, but I think that the sort of the gray area of the truth and the role that our past plays with the present moment and therefore our future are all things that I think run through everything I've done, you know, and I've just been really, really fortunate and lucky to be able to exercise maybe the same idea over and over again in different ways. And I'm not really so interested in like what anyone wants to call it. You know what I mean? Like I'm not interested. I feel like the categorization of things is not up to me. It's I guess up to other people. And I just hope that it can reach folks, you know, and that they can absorb it and they feel that it's accessible. Because you'd mentioned earlier your film America, which kind of grappled with the archiving of African-American film footage through history. And now here you have this documentary project that itself grapples with, uh, you know, an archive of, of work. Like, is that one of those moments when, like, for you, is there like a sort of an aha that, like, connects these seemingly disparate things that you've been doing? Or do you kind of only realize that, like, after the fact? I think I was pretty aware of it in the process of making time. And I think the real growing pains were with America because it was my first time like really grappling with archive. And I was also working with archive uh, that was created by people who are no longer living, you know? And so this question of intentionality and being on the same page and, and sort of collaboration was one that was like spiritual, <laughs> You know, I was like having to like burn candles and shit and like ask questions, you know, like I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't just call Burt Williams up and be like, dude, let's talk about this, you know? 
I really had to sort of see in between the frames and it was 17 frames a second. I mean, to the extent that I literally had to go through the film frame by frame to try to find these things that I knew were implicit, that I knew were true, but that were maybe harder to discern. And I think to be more specific, like when I started making America, Obama was president, right before it was going to premiere, Trump had become president and Bird is wearing blackface, but he also was making more money than the president during his time. He also was producing that film. He also had made sure that nobody else on that set was wearing blackface, right? So we understood him as a character. And it was important for me that we not um, underestimate or, or assume that people would see the power in that, what it would take for him to have done that in 1913, you know? So I had to try to find ways to look at the archive, not as something that was fixed, but as something that was flexible. And I think that that kind of feeds into the same question of like what it means to work with somebody's living life and to try to show its totality it's 360 degrees. And again, not just in this two-dimensional sphere. And now it's interesting to me that your work and even just in talking to you can get pretty heady. Like you can you can deal with some pretty abstract concepts. But I think one of the things about time is there is ultimately something so direct and impactful and emotional about it. Is it important to you that your work still, for as much as it has all these ideas behind it, that it still has something that people can connect to very simply and very directly. Yeah, totally. I mean, and, and maybe it's just because I, I lack a, a vocabulary and that's why I make it sound more complicated than it is. It's like not even that heady. I think of anything that I'm making as, as something that I hope can be used. You know what I mean? It's something that I'm trying to give. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if anything I've said, maybe none of it resonates or or translates for folks. And that's okay. I think that if there's anything they take away from it, maybe they just remember certain images or certain words and that stays with them. And I think that those memories become fact, you know, in our mind and in our bodies, which is why every single line and every single frame in my mind has to be perfect, you know, because it has so much responsibility. To you, what was the connection between Fox and her husband, Rob, like what was it? I mean, the, for the two of them to have gone through as much as they did and have stayed separated as long as they did. And yet when I was watching the film, I never doubted their love, their connection, that there was a bond between them. And do you have some sense of what that is, where that where that comes from and where the strength of that bond comes from? Gosh, that's such a great question. I'd love to know what they would say to that. I mean, I think family is something that both of them really valued. You know, and not everybody thinks in that way. Not everybody feels that they need a unit in order to move through the world. And I think that Fox and Rob naturally as individuals are people who uh, believe in community. Community is in the collective is a huge part of their own identity as individuals. And so I think it's a matter of that. And then I, I don't know. I mean, how does one explain undying love, man? Like, I mean, they just fucking love each other. Like when you're in love, like, and you don't stop loving that person and you've got six kids and, you know, you did something wrong, but you're up against a system that's treating you unfairly. You're not going to give up. And I have to say, I felt like their sons were sort of the secret weapon of the, the movie. And I think the way that you are able to use them and that as they grow and become older, as they're able to become characters in the movie in a much stronger and more impactful way. And in, in particular, I mean, the, one of the sons has a sort of a, a, a monologue about the idea of time and the impact of time 
on him. And that I assume is how you came to the title of the movie. How did you kind of realize that you could use the boys in, in that way? Well, I wasn't actually thinking about it so much in a practical sense. I think that their story is one that includes every member of the family. You know, it affected every member of the family. What struck me the most was when we think about resistance and we think about incarceration and sort of the continuation of American slavery, which is what the prison industrial complex is, the minute you start talking about it, it becomes an intergenerational conversation. It becomes one that, you know, includes the grandparents and the parents and the children and the grandchildren, you know? And so they had to be a part of the film. But I also think that there is something really amazing. If you look at Miss Peggy Fox's mother, her response to the advice she gave her daughter on how to go into the courtroom, right? And what Fox ended up doing, which was to totally contradict what her mother's advice was, right? Both of those things become a reflection of their distinct generation, right? Miss Peggy's advice was based on a, a moment in her time of what safety and survival looked like. This is what you need to do to survive. And Fox's response was a reflection of her generation. And I think with the boys, you clearly see them maneuvering and responding to the same thing in a way that reflects their generation, which is by being a part of the system, you know, to fight it. I think that that's something that freedom speaks really eloquently about. And now throughout the the film, you use this very kind of enigmatic Ethiopian piano jazz as the, the music that we hear. And it gives the movie this very sort of like ethereal, like, you know, enigmatic quality. How did you sort of discover that music and how did you come to, to decide that it was the music that you wanted to score, you know, the, the story of this family in Louisiana? Yeah, well, I had all these YouTube playlists uh, like Ethiopian 70s music on my like account and Emily's music just popped up like the algorithm again just like cosmically like gave me this gift and I was like oh man like this I don't remember which track it was that I heard first but it really it just hit me to my core and then when Gabe and I put it to picture it was really clear how perfect and beautiful it was but to be honest with you it wasn't until I really started to learn who Emily was that to me, it felt like uh, there was no way we could use anything else. You know, she's a 96-year-old Ethiopian nun. She's still alive. She came from a wealthy family, was a prisoner of war, was classically trained, was a prodigy, decided instead of becoming like a huge success that she would go back to Ethiopia and become a nun. And this one recording that she did in 1963 of all years was uh, done to raise money for an orphanage. So I just loved the idea of also bringing these two women together in space and in time. <laughs> and uh, as we've been having these uh, conversations with people, you know, everybody's kind of been stuck indoors over these past few months. What have you been watching? Has there been anything that you've watched over the past few months that's really spoke to you or that you'd want to recommend to other people? Well, it's not like super, super recent, but I have to say that Homecoming, season mm -hmm. two, like really blew my mind. It's just, it's so... Emil Masari's score is incredible. The acting is incredible. It just blew me away. It was an interesting take on how to combat capitalism, you know, because the characters are both a part of and have completely bought into and embraced capitalism, but are also kind of actively fighting against it. And I think that that's sort of a conundrum that a lot of us are, are facing right now. Um, but then, I, you know, I watch a lot of like weird stuff that I'm not going to share with anybody right now either. <laughs> That's like not cool. So. 
And do you watch a lot of other documentaries? Like, are there any documentaries you've seen this year that have, have really spoken to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I mean, Dick Johnson, I think is beautiful. This is not a doc, but um, First Cow is really beautiful. It's like having a breath. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a real First Cow head myself. Yeah, yeah, so good. That was a great conversation, Mark. And I just love that she is an admirer of First Cow. It's one of those things. Like, I like how sort of connected these conversations all have ended up being, how like certain movies have come up more than we would have expected. You know, like every so many people have mentioned First Cow. So many people have mentioned um, I May Destroy You, that just the, the way in which like I feel like what's been on people's minds, right. the stuff that they've been watching has really been sort of like connected and interesting to me. And then I really enjoyed about that conversation, the way that she has this whole other career as a fine artist, and yet it still really influences her work, especially on time, which when you think of documentaries, you think of them as being these very sort of like gritty, factual, sort of like nuts and bolts kind of granular projects. And the fact that there can be this more conceptual, open sort of artistic element to a documentary like that is what I just found really interesting. But another interesting moment I found was when you mentioned how it sort of called to mind the Irishman, whereas for me, it very much made me feel like I was watching a sort of richer and more poignant and powerful and important version of This Is Us, like seeing like the step through time with this family and like watching how they sort of developed and the time jumping, it was so interesting to me. Very powerful. And Fox is such a dynamic, dynamic figure. Yeah, I mean, as a as a character in a documentary, she's incredible and is such an inspiring person. And the, because of the nature of the way the movie was made, you do see her just grow from one edit to another. You see her just become this really dynamic person. And it's something I, I've never seen something quite like that before. I don't know if you noticed this, but like the conversation around it too, just like in hearing friends talk about it, it's always interesting to hear whether people are going to say, you should watch this drama or you should watch this documentary or this like art house film. Or uh, most recently, a friend texted me of like, have you seen time? Like it's a really moving love story. So it's it's sort of interesting to hear how different people frame what it is. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So tell me um, what you've been watching this week. I've gotten super into like a seven-year-old television show. I never had Cinemax, and so I never saw The Nick, which was a, a two-season television show. It was directed by All the episodes were directed by Steven Soderbergh, who's one of my favorite filmmakers. And so you would think I would have tried to see it before, but I just never had like the opportunity to. And now it's on the HBO Max. I get the HBO Max. So I just started watching The Nick. I just finished season one. I'm super into it. I'm really excited to see what happens in season two. Did you did you ever watch that show, Yvonne? I didn't because I just felt like there seemed to be a little too much blood for my liking. But I don't know if, if I was overestimating. You're nodding your head like there's... You you would have been correct yeah. in that assumption. It, it's about a, you know, the early days of surgery. So right. like around the turn of the last century and sort of developments in medical technology and surgical technique starring Clive Owen and Andre Holland. And some of the surgeries are very grisly because it's like very low tech as far as their techniques that they had at the, at the time. And it seems like it's an accurate representation of that. So you were, you were correct in not watching 
the show if you thought it would keep you away from it. Although I find you can just mostly avert your eyes when the grizzly parts come. Yeah, like, I don't know what that is about me. Like, I could watch an episode of Dr. Pimple Popper, but the idea of seeing blood like that is like, I can't get with it. And that's weird to me because they're both pretty squeamish things to, like, observe. But clearly something's wrong with me. You know, the show that I just started, I literally have only seen one episode, so bear with me, is WandaVision. You know, I was very intimidated with the idea of getting into that show because I'm not a Marvel person. And I was just like, can I get into this universe? But I was really interested to see, you know, the way that they sort of reference these sitcoms that are very much my thing. Um, So I'm just one episode in and it's it's really gripping. And, you know, I have to give credit to my colleague, Tracy Brown, because she has come up with these guides for each episode that have really, really helped me. Mark, did you get into WandaVision at all? You know, I haven't started watching it at all. I mean, in part because I'm like you, I'm not quite steeped enough in the Marvel Universe to feel like I'm going to get it. But then the response to it's been so strong that I, I do feel like I should try to catch up at some point. And also, it's just full of performers that I really like. I mean, Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany. And then, of course, Catherine Hahn, who like I've is one of my favorite actresses. And to see her in something that feels a little different from her seems like it'd be something, you know, you'd want to see. I just kind of haven't had time for it yet. Yeah. Well, it's fun to get out of my comfort zone. I've been sort of liking to watch things that I'm more familiar with or I know I'll like. So to sort of venture out a little bit, it is a good thing to do. So I recommend it. But tell me who you've got in next week's episode. We actually have two guests for the podcast next week. It's actor Mads Mikkelsen and director Thomas Vinterberg. Their latest collaboration is Another Round, which is a a film about a a high school teacher who kind of is feeling stuck in his life. And he and some of his colleagues decide to put to the test this theory that human beings naturally have too low of a blood alcohol content. So if you just are a little bit drunk all the time, you'll be optimizing your life. We just looked at world history and we saw how many fantastic and great accomplishments that have been done by people who are actually drunk. And we wanted to make a celebration of alcohol. And that developed into a more ambitious project of making a film about the whole nature of alcohol, also the dark sides. And then in the process of writing, we again wanted to elevate this to be about more than just drinking. We wanted it to be about life in all humbleness. Yeah, the movie, it's its both a very stirring drama and it also has sort of a lighter quality to it because some of the drunk scenes are fun, but then it also gets to sort of a darker place with some of that. And, you know, that was director Thomas Vinterberg that was just describing the, the movie a little bit. And not only did the film itself receive a nomination for the Best International Feature, but Thomas was something of a surprise nominee in the Best Director category. Hmm. I feel like maybe we should come prepared with some libations as we discuss that conversation next week. So I'm just suggesting have a cocktail ready. I will try. I'm not good at making them, but maybe I'll have something on hand. But everyone, you can listen to our podcast next week to hear Mark's conversation with Thomas and Mads. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Yvonne Villarreal, and by my colleague, Mark Olson. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson, and our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Mike for making our theme song. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the LA Times. 
Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and The Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.